Hello and welcome to On Geopolitics, the podcast that looks at geopolitics in historical context with myself, Ali Ansari, and my colleague, Suzanne Rain. Uh, we've been away for a little while, but we're now back, all refreshed after the uh, the uh, Christmas holidays and a bit more by the sounds of it. So what are we, what are we talking about today, Suzanne? Well, Ali, <laughs> we are looking at geopolitics in a historical context, and I thought we'd start our podcasts of this year, and recognising that we've already some way into the year, with the question about history and its relation to geopolitics. So we've called this, Can We Escape History? And the thing that prompted my thinking about this was a discussion I had last week with the Imperial War Museum in the context of a question about how we tell the story of what's happening as a consequence of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And one of the people who was there was a lady called Yulia Vaganova, who is acting director of the Bogdan and Valvena Khanenko National Museum in Kiev. And she just said one thing that made me think about the way that we've all responded to what Russia has done. And she said, the current conflict was not inevitable. And by saying that, what she was actually saying is, all the discussions that we're having, one way or another, are about whether or not it could have been avoided on the one hand. So could NATO mm. have done something differently? Was it because of the way we behaved towards Putin? That sort of question. But but then more broadly, the way that history is used to sort of set out a series of things that are kind of determined for the future. So because Crimea was Russian, it must be Russian. Because Ukraine was this kind of ur-Russian sort of heartland, it must therefore be Russian again. And her point that she was making was that none of those things must be the case just because they were the case in historical terms. So that made me think a lot about mm. uh, discussions that you and I have had already, Ali, on this podcast and elsewhere about how history is used to justify an action, how it drives grievances which cause effects. Um, how I mean, how actually all of us have turned to history to understand and explain what is happening, and so you know, books like Orlando Figer's History of the Crimean War. I don't know; it's probably sold a lot more copies in the last year than it had in the preceding five. I know, bet because everybody sort of wants to know, and of course, Putin, I think, um, has actually won on this point because you could argue that he has very successfully educated all of us in Russia's historical right to the territory that is now Ukraine, which was something that we were much less aware about a year ago. So that was my sort of start point on all of this. The current conflict was not inevitable just because there was a historical um, claim to the Crimea doesn't mean it should be Russian now. And that that's the heart, that's the start point, Ali, for the question about campus. Yeah, no, I mean it's 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 interesting because I mean I think what you're saying in, in some ways also is that it's the the narrative the Russians have have basically sold is the narrative that we we've accepted. And because a lot of these states, you know, like Ukraine and the other, you know, former states of the Soviet Union are basically rediscovering their history in a way, aren't they? I mean, they're they're newly independent, they're recreating in a sense or 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 educating us really and educating themselves but perhaps i don't know about their history to some extent um 
rediscovering it certainly uh, then you know those narratives clash and we and we begin to see i think as your contact said you know at the imperial war museum that in a sense we we've been drawn into this conflict really through the prism of a, of a highly sort of russian narrative about what it means i mean i remember years and years ago after the fall of the soviet union meeting people from ukraine and being quite surprised that the way in which they insisted that they were ukrainian and not russian i had always assumed rather naively obviously that well you know you're you're sort of like a i don't know a subset of russia or something you know i mean that was the, just the way i saw it which is obviously clearly incorrect and um but it was so embedded you know so part of that so it it becomes part of that historical um historical uh, legacy and that that inheritance and i suppose you know one of the things that in in terms of policy making and in terms of how we how we look at things is the way in which as you know as you're saying history is used and abused um i think it's probably abused more than it's used to be honest i mean given the fact that i, I you know i think one of the things we've discussed is how poorly um, how historically illiterate actually a lot of us are i think i think in many ways we're better in the united kingdom actually but there's still some way to go i mean if you look at other countries i think it's somewhat worse but uh, um, you know, there's a lot of interest in history, but there's a lot of interest in what we might term popular history, isn't there? It's not really a history that is uh, sufficiently detailed or sufficiently engaged with the arguments. And so often we we end up, as we've seen in political discussions, you know, in the United Kingdom, actually, you know, re- relating obviously to recent political events and others, uh, we're often taking a very one-dimensional um somewhat sort of waxwork imitation of history really to make to to make the case and you know i'm 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 struck that obviously historians have engaged with this this sort of stuff as are philosophers but um you know that one of the things that i was very struck about when i was doing my own research was a, an article in actual fact written by by the the german philosopher nietzsche enough to put anyone off you might suspect but yes i'm wondering you know, nietzsche, where this is going ali but let i know but nietzsche has a wonderful line actually and he says that you know the problem with countries and he's obviously talking at high tide when you know the nation state mm. if you want for want of a better word is sort of emerging in the 19th century and you know he sees how history is you know handmaiden to the development of this nation state but he he says that the problem that many of these states have is that they have an oversaturation of history. Mm. And I thought that's a fascinating term, actually, because it's not so much that we are anchored in our history and therefore able to move forward, you know, confident from on, on where we've come from and therefore we can look forward. What he was saying, actually, is we're trapped by it mm. and we can't move forward. And I, I thought that was, you know, I thought that's quite an, a, a, an interesting way to look at it, that you can actually have too much of a good thing, I hesitate to say. But that was the uh, that that was the argument that was coming across, and of course we see that in a in a whole range of different uh, uh, different experiences that we've had, um, you know, all over the world actually, not yeah. you know not simply the the non European world. Well, I was thinking, Ali, because um, this was my sort of devil's advocate point. Mm. You, you and I are both historians. Uh, you That's right. you are a professional historian. I was a historian once, um, and you know, still think like that, and. You know, obviously, this latest Russian action is one of a series. You know, there's there is no limit to the number of examples we might be able to provide, which show essentially justification for some sort of action because of um, a need. You know, it's a grievance based narrative, isn't it? So, so, so history is used to create a sense of identity, to create a justification, to create grievances that motivate people to act. 
and divide and and build loyalties, but also build enmities. All of that comes from a narrative which uses selective aspects of history to to create this sort of simplifying thing that motivates. And I just suddenly thought, wouldn't we all be so much happier if we if if we We didn't have it? We just didn't have it. If we just (laughs) and and there's obviously there's a there's a very there's a complicated line somewhere between forgetting and ignorance. And right. and somewhere in the middle, there's the bit about forgiveness and learning, which I know we're going to talk about some more. But even within the UK, the divisions within the UK are based on all sorts of historical narratives, none of which, of course, are anything other than a selected set of facts used to build an identity or a cause. And yet, because of them, we're all deeply rooted in in particular positions, which mean that we're constantly having arguments with each other. And Brexit and Scottish referendum and all the rest of it, they're all just examples of that. And then you put it on a global geopolitical scale. We're doing that as countries. We're doing that as groups of countries. um, And and in a way, we're we're destined (laughs) to fight with each other because we keep remembering our history. So, so the really radical solution would be that we should all forget and just just be happy. But I appreciate that that's not possible. So, what we're going to look at instead is, um, I think, Ali, more about how history is is used to drive grievances and 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 to drive action and also to drive inaction. I think as well. But can I? I mean, to take that point, which I which I think is an, an interesting one. Don't you think, actually, in some ways? That you know, what one of the differences, of course, between Britain and the in the EU is, is simply that that the EU wants to forget that history. You know, the Europeans want to forget their recent history and, and to build a new history, almost, don't they? So they want to build a new history of of uh, you know cooperation and collaboration, almost as if all those rivalries and wars and everything hadn't occurred. But ironically, you know, what what's happening is that you know the the erasure of particular identities is actually resulting in all these sort of nationalist movements emerging. Uh, you see some of the worst aspects of it, obviously, in Central Europe, and um, all coming out with a certain amount of grievances. Because one of the Just things, as you say... Just in Hungary there, or are you... Uh, possibly, okay. yes, possibly, yes. Uh, I'm just um, thinking because some Central European countries you wouldn't want to. No, no, that's true. That's true. So again. yeah, so Hungary, I think it is. Mm. But uh, you know, there are you know, if, if if you look at a range of you know, every country wants to sort of establish a certain identity. So part of it's an identity issue, but another part of it is also um, yes, a sense of grievance, and they build up these grievances against normally a more dominant power, um, whether it's you know uh, Brussels or Westminster. So they sort of sort of argue uh, that they've been hard done by, and you see this repeated in all sorts of nationalist ideologies around the world. I mean, it's not obviously limited to um, uh, to Europe at all, but it, it is very interesting that they sort of select these things out. So, however much you try to reshape that narrative, and however much we, in a sense, for- want to forget that those some of those narratives, I think that it's almost like a constant struggle, a constant sort of negotiation and struggle for that historical landscape. Because if we vacate it, someone will come come and occupy it that that's deeply unpleasant. You know that that's the issue. So, in a sense, while your your argument about oh let's forget all about it and let's not have history, which is obviously a nice because I don't believe for a moment, Suzanne, that you believe that being a good thorough historian. I don't believe that, but, but I'm just no. 
being a but challenge. But you want to put that out there. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's worth thinking about because I think some very idealistic people would, wouldn't want to pursue that. But the problem I think we found and we find repeatedly is that the minute you try to, how should we say, hollow it out, vacate it or remove the memory or whatever, um, someone else less salubrious in a sense will come and occupy. And it's something I should say that, and, and, and I was fascinated by this really, was uh, Butterfield, you know, who wrote his critique of Whig history. So if you look at... Do you want for, for, for some of our... Um... For some of our readers, uh, listeners, uh, who, listeners, for some of our listeners who might not know who Butterfield is, can you explain? Yeah, let me explain. So, you know, one of the great narratives of English history is is regarded and somewhat contemptuously regarded, it has to be said, as Whig history. And that Whig history is this narrative, basically identified as a narrative of progress that sees sort of like an inevitable sort of ascension of England and Britain uh, through a sort of a constitutional progress. You know, if you want to push it back to the Anglo-Saxons, you can. But, you know, largely, if you look at Macaulay, who is the chief architect of this narrative, really from the period of the Glorious Revolution, 1688 onwards, it's sort of a march. It's a very triumphal march, and it's almost like written as if it's an inevitability. I mean, the, the way the narrative is constructed is, is we're going towards this great, uh, this great destination. And actually, I should add, by the way, that I think the Americans are a much, much stronger adherence to this Whig narrative than the British are now, certainly. But the Americans, you know, it's still very powerful there. And, um, of course, Butterfield comes in uh, in the 1930s and he, in a very pithy, I have to say, in the good old days when you could make your name by writing a sort of 100-page book and stuff and, and or less, and a really pithy argument sort of demolishes it and basically says all this is, you know, it's a very selective use of evidence, very selective, basically an abuse of history, a selective use of evidence um, that is basically teleological. So by which I mean that, you know, you have your argument, you, mm. you, you know your destination, you get the facts to fit that destination. So the current conflict is inevitable. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So that that's exactly the word. So he demolishes it and he says, you know, this is nonsense and, we, you know, everything is contingent and, and uh, uh, let's not let's not get too complacent, which is absolutely right. You know, I mean, that that is absolutely right because obviously that the the, the complacency that weak history encourages is can be quite disastrous as we have seen. But nonetheless, in, in the middle of the Second World War, I mean, this is the interesting thing, he sort of reviews this and he says, you know, that I have to admit, you know, and, and this is the other interesting thing, of course, is that it's in moments of crisis, it's in moments of high trauma that you need clarity. You know, you need, you need that. You can't have people saying it could be this and it could be that and it might be this and it might be that. You know, in the same way as you look at Zelensky today, um, you know, he comes in with a lot of clarity, huge clarity. Whereas, you know, the European, some Europeans certainly go, well, possibly, but we might, but we might not. Mm. So in comes Zelensky. So again, what Butterfield does is he says, you know, looking at this and looking at the existential struggle that Britain and the British Empire now have against Nazi Germany, you know, my worry is, he basically says, that having got rid or demolished the Whig history and that sort of glorious triumph of you know, English civilization. Uh, what we've done is, is, in his own words, and if I may, if I may quote, oh, just very please briefly, I think quote, he, I think, I, I think yeah. he, he, he certainly says it more eloquently than I could. He says here, he says, it is not necessary or useful to deny that the theme of English political history is the story of our liberty. We are all of us exultant and unrepentant Whigs. Those who perhaps in the misguided austerity of youth wish to drive out that Whig interpretation that particular thesis which controls our abridgment of English history, and that word abridgment I think is quite mm. important, mm. are sweeping a room which, humanly speaking, cannot long remain empty. 
they are opening the door for seven devils, which, precisely because they are newcomers, are bound to be worse than the first. And I, I thought that's a it's it's a wonderful reflection actually because he admits Hang on, so himself. Who, who are the having, seven devils? Who are they? Well, I mean, what he's saying about something is that you know you get all these sort of lesser you know narratives, these unpleasant you know, and it's basically this idea that not having a clear idea of where we've come from and being racked by doubt and not having sort of a certain amount of self-confidence, we are actually doing ourselves and our purpose a lot of damage in this great struggle that we're doing. We, we need to have a certain... So again, it's not to go back to Nietzsche. It's not being trapped by your history, but it's being anchored by your history. And, and in what he did, he basically removed the anchor and you know the ship of state is adrift basically is what it's, it's in danger of becoming adrift and worse than that not only is it in danger of becoming adrift but it's 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 in danger of being caught up by i don't know if i'm using my analogies very well here no i think you so I, I you know it's it's been caught by different by different waves if i can put it that way what I, yes oh i see that's the drift yeah what i i think what you're saying or what he's saying um mm. is is that whoever controls the history will control the populace in a way. Is that, is that what he's saying? Because I'm just thinking about, again, how how Putin has used the history to, you know, just build support for the, for the war, which is otherwise unjustifiable. And I'll give you an example, um, which I don't know whether we were talking just before. In October mm. uh, last year, 2022, when the Russians were in Kherson and they took from the cathedral, St. Catherine's Cathedral in Kherson, they took mm. the bones of Potemkin. Now, Potemkin was a um, lover of Catherine the Great, um, and he annexed, he persuaded her to annex Crimea in 1783 and founded Kherson and Odessa and sought the creation of this kind of new Russia, which was the dominion that stretched across what is now southern Ukraine and the Black Sea. So that is 250 years ago. But as the Russians were being pushed back out of Kherson, they went into the cathedral. They went, um, there's a good article in the New York Times where it said, how, to, to, how do you get to his body? So you'd have had to open the trap door in the floor, <laughs> climb down a narrow passageway, and then they would have found a simple wooden coffin on a raised dais marked with a single cross. And under the lid of the coffin, a small black bag, which held Potemkin's skull and bones, which were carefully numbered. And they took it, and they didn't. They didn't hide it. They publicised the fact that they took it. And the Russian appointed head of the of the Kherson region, Vladimir Saldo, said that his remains had been taken from the city on the west bank of the Dnipro River to an undisclosed location east of the Dnipro in order to protect them. So, in every aspect of that, there's a story about. Temkin being central part of Russia and it being in Kherson. And, and then, you know, we, the Russians, have come and we've rescued his remains from the Ukrainians who are going to destroy them in some way. Um, they're now safe somewhere else. And, and of course, who knows where they're going to end up. But did they, did they, I mean, did they take them? Did they take them because they, they, they saw them as somehow sacred to the national narrative? Is that what you're saying, basically, that they were important to keep secure? Yeah. I think so. I mean, they did a, because I mean, it's ironic, isn't it? Given it's Potemkin of all people, who was who was not unknown for faking it, uh, <laughs> from what I understand. <laughs> you know, well, I mean, he. he <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Simon Seabag Montefiore, who's, who's commented quite a lot, he was following it quite closely when it happened because he said it's the ninth time that Potemkin has been 
moved. So again, you've got this example of a, a figure in history who's who's remained. The, how, how many times he's been moved? Ninth time Ninth. that he's been moved. Um, I mean, do you, I mean, I could I could give you the story. Um, should you want? Um, there's quite a lot of information about it in the New York Times article, um, which you can look up. But basically, what happened once he died? There was a sort of special crypt, and then when Catherine yeah. died, her son and successor Paul the First, who ruled Russia until his assassination in 1801, he got cross because Potemkin was more revered than he was. So he ordered Potemkin be buried in an unmarked grave. So even then, actually, you've got this sort of history and, and present competing with each other. So so the Tsar is competing with the dead hero. Um, anyway, so so then, I mean, basically a whole load of toings and froings all the way through the 19th century. Then you had the Bolshevik Revolution, uh, where the crypt was opened up again. Um, the photographs of revolutionaries holding up the remains. And then, yeah, I mean, grave was reopened in the 1980s by officials seeking to confirm the identity of the remains. So this is not a new thing. It's it's a consistent theme, basically, since the day he died. And and if you think about it, there's, there's, it's a really eloquent example of um, the sort of Russian, the attachment to, to history, I mean, it's 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 a sort of medieval thing, isn't it? It's, these are the saints' bones. Um, it's, it's like they're sort of sacred, yeah, sacred relics. Yes, and and but you and, see, I I I mean, I think I you know, obviously that's a sort of an ownership of artifacts, but it's um, and they they obviously give it a certain aura of you know, in their in their view, in their view, it has a certain aura. But to go back to Butterfield, I mean, I I think what he's saying is you've always got to engage with those historical narratives. Otherwise, less savoury people will come and occupy the ground, which is basically like Putin. We never engage, you know. Yeah. I mean, that's the interesting thing I think about this country. We've got a huge amount of history in, in the public sphere. I mean, I, I I don't know of any other countries actually where I think history is studied more widely at university, school, but also just in popular, you know, magazines, uh, Podcasts, podcasts. And, uh, mm. yeah, and uh, you know, um, some much much more popular than ours, I have to say. But the um, just give it but time. At the same Annie. time, there'll be an insurrection. At the same, give it. But at the same time, on a formal level, shall we say, on a uh, even a political or or, or a policy level, we we probably don't yet engage enough. So you know, when Putin's making claims like this. Um, it hasn't really been challenged. And perhaps the greatest flaw, actually, in that is the whole seizure of Crimea in the first place in 2014, where nobody said anything, really, did they? I mean, they sort of said, well, it sort of, you know, it's part of the, you know, and 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 they fudged it. Um, you see similar things, I think, going on with, um, you know, what was noted as the Curzon line, you know, back at the, after the First World War, and that sort of Poland's eastern frontier with Russia. You know, again, those frontiers were seen to be a lot more fluid, really, than the ones to the West. And it's always one of the reasons which I was always puzzled about. But when, you know, when you get the Nazi-Soviet pact and they both invade and take over Poland, mm. actually, France and Britain only declare war against Germany. They don't declare war against the Soviet Union. Uh, and, and I always wondered, why was that? And partly it's because they sort of had a fairly, you know, they weren't as hard-headed about what those borders signified. You know, they thought those borders were, historically speaking, sort of much more 
much more fluid. But, you know, you could say which borders are hard and far. I mean, you know, in a sense, borders, once they're settled, you know, over a matter of time, they do become harder. But that doesn't mean there's any sort of, I don't know, natural uh, inevitability about a certain set of borders where they should be. Obviously, what the Russians have tried to do is to say that, you know, as far as Putin's concerned, the natural borders are, you know, the Baltic and, you know, down to the Black Sea. (laughs) And 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 uh, I don't know as further as as far west as they can possibly make it. But it's very interesting how the Russians mm. define their their um, their territorial limits. I mean, it it seems uh, um, you know they they they're taking a very maximalist view of their own history. So you've made me think, Ali. Then about um, the current conflict was not inevitable. A case could be made that some conflicts are inevitable because borders are simply in the wrong place. And a case in point about the UK and our, um, in some instances, we're we're too good at forgetting, which means that it slips very clearly into ignorance. And the example I might give here, or one of many, would be the Sykes-Picot sort of territory carve up. Uh, Dangerous ground. Mm. Well, simply, so the, the, the point, that the reason I raise it is not to unpack the whole mm. issue, but to make the point that when um, Daesh took over swathes of Iraq and Syria, they used that narrative. They talked explicitly about the Sykes-Picot line. And if you had asked most people across the UK mm. or France... Um, the countries who sort of anyone would know what you're talking about. If you'd have asked them what Mm. it was, I don't think James Barr would know. But that's and and actually by um, well, James Barr would know because he wrote a book about it um, very presciently. Um, But but that actually is a rare example of um, of a book that really that 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 was published ahead of you know before it was needed rather than after in a way um, because. When Daesh started talking about the Sykes-Picot line, everyone can go and say, "What? what is this? And you've got a fantastic book which explains what it is and why it matters. But the, the point um, I'm making is we kind of had forgotten all about it. We, we accepted the arrangement of the states in the Middle East broadly as they are. We knew that there was a huge amount of conflict, but we weren't. Mm. But but if you know, if you think about it, for that to have been a primary aspect of the Daesh agenda, it shows how how long that particular grievance narrative has has just been part of the narrative. And we didn't know, or we didn't understand. And you could argue, of course, the same with the Durham line. But doesn't it exemplify doesn't it exemplify the very thing we're talking about? That you know, mm. along that with Westphalia, by the way. I mean, as, yeah. as James Barr shows, you know, Sykes-Picot was never implemented. If Sykes-Picot had been implemented, the French should have been governing much larger tracts of the Middle East. The the fact <laughs> is that the, the you know the, the important the important thing is is I suppose the theme behind it that obviously European powers had come and divvied up you know parts of the Ottoman Empire. That's quite true. But the interesting thing is is that people what they do is they hang on to these catchphrases. So they talk about the Balfour Declaration. They talk about Sykes-Picot. They talk about mm-hmm. Westphalia. And it becomes a sort of a um, a, a, a token, a, a historical token, which 
is rich in meaning, but not actually the correct me. I mean, not not yes. actually the correct. Yes, it meaning, goes, so it becomes a shorthand for shorthand. Um, shorthand. That's the word you know, I was looking for. France and Britain yeah. turned up in our territory, yeah. divided up our countries, um, and it's been a mess ever since. That's what they're saying, and we want to do it our yeah. way. That's right. And that's what they're saying. But of course, they're not, you know, and we've talked earlier in a previous podcast about the whole notion of Khorasan, you know, which is also quite interesting, because that's, I suppose that's a reverse case where, you know, they have this understanding of Khorasan that's like, you know, it's a var, it's almost basically the whole of Mm. Central Asia, as far as I can see. But the, uh, you know, obviously our understanding of it is quite quite different in that reading, you know, we need to also understand the reading that they have. But their their understanding, I mean, I I have to say, is 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 interesting because it's it is very shorthand, it is very summary, um, and in many ways, it's just plain wrong. Actually, their understanding of it, but they take certain things away, and you know, I I, I think from a Western perspective, things have to be engaged with more fully. I mean, I think many people uh, from a Western perspective spend far too much time apologising rather than explaining if i can put it that way you know there there is room to apologize obviously i mean i think there is room there, there are huge errors that have been done and it's it's no doubt that uh, often to to paraphrase james these lines in the sand were sort of basically drawn without much attention to some of the very important detail i mean we can see that in africa too obviously for for obvious reasons but um they weren't wholly you know it wasn't entirely correct. i mean the you know iraq was created out of three Ottoman Velayats, for instance. I mean, they, they, I have to say it was a particularly bad, uh, jigsaw puzzle in that sense. But, uh, but nonetheless, you know, there were administrative centers in which these sort of constituent areas, there was a reason they were put together the, the way they were. It obviously wasn't necessarily the best reason, but, uh, and there were always going to be problems. I mean, certainly other peoples in the regions like the Kurds, for instance, are coming back into prominence again because of recent events, both in Iran and elsewhere. Uh, I think all this, you know, they they were denied, you know, they had this idea that they might come up with a sort of territorial state at the end of the First World War, and of course they were denied it because it wasn't deemed to be uh, um, uh, favourable at that stage to, you know, broader Western interests. But again, that's the sort of interesting thing as they sort of take this up. I think they're powerful motifs, but they're not entirely accurate either. But but it's so interesting, Ali, because it's that, juxtaposition of remembering and forgetting. So if you are Kurdish, you remember mm. or you've been taught and that's that's all a fundamental part about who you are is that history of the last hundred and something years. And if you're British, you probably don't know anything about it because we've forgotten it. And so then you have in geopolitical terms, when two nations are trying to work out how to relate to each other, Understanding what each remembers and forget what remembers, I suppose, about mm. what the other did is a really yeah. important part of the conversation bet- that they're having. Because if if you're British and you approach the Kurds and you haven't understood that what that what the narrative is, you're going to get it wrong. Um, so I think, having said, we'd all be happier if we didn't do any history. I'm now saying that really important um, to understand it. As as I would expect, Suzanne, as I would expect as someone, you know, because I think, you know, I think the interesting thing, and, and you're quite right, of course, is that what bits do we forget? What bits do we remember? Mm. And obviously from a British perspective or a Middle Eastern perspective, there are certain things. Obviously, if you're an Israeli, if you're a Palestinian, the Balfour Declaration is of vital importance to your mm. narrative history. 
if you're British, it doesn't actually feature that heavily unless, you know, you happen to be of particular communities. But, you know, it's not at the forefront and most people won't have a clue what it's about. Uh, similarly, if you go to oil nationalization in Iran, you know, the Iranians, so that was a central, pivotal moment of their national story. In Britain, you'd be hard-pressed to find it. Now, you know, what, what I find interesting, and I try to explain this to colleagues on, on both sides, is it may be important to you, and it may be, you may think it's unimportant to others, but actually there's a reason why it's unimportant. You know, you, you mustn't, you know, it is part of a wider tapestry in Britain, and it shouldn't be as any surprise to you that most people in Britain wouldn't have a clue about it. I mean, why would they? Because what they're interested in is something much more local or something much more immediate. So I, you know, I, I think that's um, something that, in terms of geopolitics and in terms of relationships between states, we also don't do enough on, you know, on the other side to explain, you know, what's going on in the European or, or the American or, or the American state. I mean, to give you one example, I always used to argue with colleagues during 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 the the Iran during the Islamic Revolution in Iran in 1978-79. You know, I talked to someone who was in the National Security Council in in, in America. And I'd say, you know, why did you do this? Why didn't you do that? Why? And he, you know, he said very clearly, he said, you know, in 365 days of the year, we had so many different things that we were dealing with in the National Security mm. Council. Iran was one of them. Mm. You know, and and I mean, you, would, you, would, you would understand, you know, you would understand that better than mm. most, I think, wouldn't you? I mean, it's, 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 a, it's one of many topics that you're dealing with, and it may not be the most important. But I think it's, uh, Iran's such a good example because... Mm. Because that the memory and the kind of stereotypes that have mm. come out of the memory, uh, none of the countries involved, and the UK has has a very high profile in that because yeah. we did it at the time, we can't get past it. So we mm. are completely trapped in that history. And and I think you know, there's there's a whole set of conversations which is like how it is impossible for us to persuade the Iranians that we're not as clever as they think we are. So they think we're playing this really complicated game of chess and we're not playing any, you know, we're, we're not. But that's, but is, is that right, Ali? I mean, massively. No, I, I, I think it's absolutely right. And I, I, I think, I mean, part of that is, of course, it's politically cultivated. Uh, part of it is also because it was encouraged by the British themselves. There's nothing better than to encourage your opponent to believe that you're, that you're omnipotent when you're not. Because it, it's actually a cheap way of of uh, managing power, isn't it? I mean, if your opponent thinks you're running everything, well, you know, great. You know, let let, let them think that. Of course, it rebounds on you when you, when you'd rather they didn't think that. But but that that's one of the things. But I I think certainly in Iran, um, one of the reasons these things are effectively seared into the imagination is because they occur in periods of high trauma. I mean, I I, I you know I don't know. If you look at Ukraine and Russia now, I mean, obviously, in the trauma of war and conflict, this thing will be part of the memory for a long time to come. And th this is why, you know, Putin's invasion is such a disaster in the sense of, in terms of his of his longer term ambitions. I mean, the, it, the sense that Ukrainian identity has now been sort of consolidated and, and, and coheres much more clearly because of his idiotic actions. You know that he he would have much rather that wasn't the case, and you know there was a much more fraternal relationship between the two countries. Well, in in the U.S. and Iran, for instance, or Iran and the U.K., you know, it has to do, I think, with the trauma of the Islamic Revolution, the hostage crisis, certainly for the Americans, uh, nineteen fifty three for the Iranians, as far as the U.K. and, and the U.S. is concerned, 
Although I'd have to say, and I do say this, when you look at the historical record, a lot of these are sort of embellished and reinforced with the benefit of hindsight. Because, you know, what, one of the things that I would say, and I, I said this at a lecture in, 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 in America quite recently, actually, um, you know, everyone assumes that the relations between the United States and Iran were shattered by the revolution. Actually, they weren't. I mean, what they, what they were shattered by was the hostage crisis, and that took place in November 79. You know, the Shah had left in January 79. Now, the other interesting thing, which even I hadn't realized when I wrote, I wrote a study of US-Iran relations many, many years ago, and I have to say the first edition has a whopper in it, so don't buy the first edition. Everyone and the whopper do is not this. buy Ali's whatever First it is. edition, Look. no, buy the paperback, <laughs> buy the paperback. Buy the paperback. But, <laughs> buy the paperback. But, but, and, but I tell you what it is, because I had sort of assumed without any sort of like, you know, it was one of those things. It's 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 a it's a salutary lesson to always check your facts, by the way. But you know, I'd sort of assumed that you know the 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 Iranian students had gone into the embassy, they'd taken the hostages, and you know Carter, you know, obviously diplomatic relations had been broken. I was then emailed by one of the hostages. It was, I always remember this, and he said, "I, uh, you know, I loved your book. Obviously, he did love my book." But then he said, uh, "You know, but I I'd like to correct an error." I thought, you know, what, oh dear, you know, what is this uh, horrendous? And he said, basically, Carter didn't break diplomatic relations until the following March. So, <laughs> I mean, and I just thought, really? You know, I mean, so what does that tell you, of course, is that the Americans were trying to manage the transition. They didn't want to break relations. So even though their embassy had been taken over, even though their diplomats had been taken hostage, Carter, from November to March, there were full diplomatic relations between Iran wow. and the US. I mean, there was an embassy operating in Washington. Now, again, you know, that sort of plays against the, the sort of the grain of the argument that we have in hindsight, that this was a very sort of uh, a break in relations. It was a, 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 you know, relations went south very quickly after that. No, this was a process, but obviously at the benefit of, with, with, the, with the distance that we have, we, we, we tend to telescope it into one incident. And again, I, again, I think that's, that, that's interesting in the way in which history is, is manipulated for political mm. purpose. Because even in the Islamic Republic, they'll say our relations with the US have been inevitably bad. They weren't. I mean, that was, you know, I mean, you know and, and even three, four years after that, of course, the Reagan was busy working out, you know, Iran-Contra and all this and shipping weapons. Mm. So do you see, I mean, it's, it's that sort of thing. All, all these things in an Iranian context, incidentally, and in an American context in some ways, are basically erased from the record. You don't want to discuss the fact that in 1983 or whatever it was, Reagan was busy shipping weapons to Iran, you know, in its war against Iraq, especially in the aftermath of the hostage crisis. Um, and the Iranians don't want to remember that either, because again, that goes against the grain of the inevitable hostility between Iran and the great Satan. You know, so, so you forget it, you forget it, you ignore it. So the role in this case, it, it directly of of the historian, which would be you, yeah, of pointing out um, the that incongruity that the the, the 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 accepted narrative isn't exactly what happened. Is really important, but of course it's very difficult. I'm not saying that not everybody has read your book because that clearly isn't true. But that's clearly in not the true. unlikely yeah. event that not everybody has read your book, they're going to believe the thing that they're told to believe, or that the, the prevailing belief. Um, you know, in, in this case, information is controlled, so they will believe the thing that they're taught. And and of course, you can get really structural about this because it's about. It's about school curriculums. It's about what courses are taught at universities and what courses aren't taught. It's about culture and, and all of those things as well, isn't it? 
Ali, I think um, that there's so much that we've still got to talk about that probably we should take a break here and finish this episode and then come back next time for the second half of the conversation, if that's okay with you. I think that's an excellent idea because there's so much to talk about. So we'll, we'll continue later. Brilliant. So thank you for listening, everyone. Ali and I were going to come back with part two of our discussion on can we escape history in the very near future. That will be the future, Ali, not the past. Yes, very good. The future. Looking forward to it. 